As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our weekend review. On this episode, we look back on a weekend where Dortmund kept doing what they do best, scoring some goals and conceding even more when Bayern Munich came to the Westfalen Stadion. Robert Lewandowski was mighty fine and Jude Bellingham is going to get a mighty fine. It was a weekend where we tragically lost the Yankee Stadium MLS Cup final we all wanted, but we're getting it in a different baseball stadium anyway. Providence Park, baseball stadium, factos people. And it was a weekend where Ralph Ranić impressed with his press as Man United were much less of a mess, but I digress. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who is totally here for the reformation and vindication of Manchester United midfielder Fred the Fred Aisons, Graham Rutherford. <laughs> I am here for the renaissance of Fred. I mean, I have thrown uh, my, my fair share of criticism towards him, but I, I, I am here for his redemption arc. Me too, me too. He scored the winner, of course, against Crystal Palace in a game which we will chat a little about uh, later on. But uh, it's it's nice to have a, a little arc on a player and to, to come round to... The, 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 the goodness bends round to positivity, I think, is the phrase I've completely nagged there. <laughs> yeah, the, the only downside is that of the McFred partnership, I have, I have um, considered McTominay to be the better of the two. And so if that changes, then maybe Fred becomes the villain for me. Indeed. Well, let's press on and introduce a man who hopefully had a better weekend than RSL right back Aaron Herrera. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, were you at fault for any goals and got sent off this weekend? I wasn't. And in that regard, I think my weekend was infinitely better than Aaron Herrera's. Indeed, not a good one. There's a couple of players who didn't have a, a great weekend, which we shall touch on later in this show. So Herrera very much being one of them. Joe, welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you here. We're going to be talking about the MLS uh, conference finals, of course, in this show too. Uh, Taylor Rockwell isn't here today. Um, he's been drafted in by the Philadelphia Union to work on their cameras at the stadium <laughs> to replace the one from 1997 they were using for this conference final. Uh, it, it, it seemed, Joe, the game was filmed through a potato there. <laughs> Um, it was like when you get those YouTube streams where you don't have a good enough connection to watch them. And you're just desperately pressing the little gear in the bottom right-hand corner, hoping that something greater <laughs> than 360p is an option, and it just isn't. It was it was weird. The first five or ten minutes of that game, the, the broadcast was on something, and it did get better. But I've 
I've noticed this happening with ESPN MLS broadcasts, and this one was on ABC, the Union versus NYCFC on Sunday. But with with those broadcasts, obviously the same same company there, they're way grainier than the Fox broadcasts, and I don't understand why. Even after they got it all sorted out on, on Sunday, it still didn't look as good as the RSL Portland game did on Saturday on FS1. So I don't know exactly what's going on there, but Ryan, you're right. There may be some potatoes involved. I, I, I thought I was the only one who noticed that because I'm, I'm normally um, a bit of a stickler for kind of crisp TV output, and yeah, it was really weird. If, if it's not, if the game hasn't been filmed through a... Uh, like a, a batting net. I don't know what the baseball term is at Yankee <laughs> Stadium. You know that that thing that they have in front of the camera at Yankee Stadium. If it's not being filmed through that, the a MLS net, sure. pl- yeah, MLS playoff games are being filmed on a Sony Ericsson phone from the, oh. er- the early 2000s. Graham, yeah. the baseball folks are so angry at you right now. They're just so, <laughs> so angry. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> Well, on that note, we do have lots of lots to cover today. We have got the MLS Conference Finals. We've got their Classica in the Bundesliga. Lots of big games in the Premier League as well. Before we get there, though, gents, story that stood out to me. Graham, um, according to Reddit, um, there was a ball from Dundee Athletic, um, an amateur side in Dundee, Scotland, that was kicked in a river uh, after a game. Oh, I saw and it's, this. It's ended up in the Netherlands um, a few weeks later. Um that's quite a peculiar one. When I was younger and I used to kick the ball over to my neighbor's yard and go back and get it, that's one thing. Having to go to a different country 400 miles away, that's quite another. Yeah, I mean, when I used to kick a ball into the neighbor's garden, uh, frequently the neighbor had stuck a knife through that ball. So I guess Dundee no. Athletic should count, count themselves lucky that there was no knife in their ball. <laughs> I think we're getting an inside look into Graham's psyche right now, guys. I think no, that's this just is a Scotland. rare opportunity. <laughs> So I've heard, that's a cliche, Graham. Did that seriously happen to you? An actual knife in the ball because it went over too frequently? Uh, I don't remember if a knife, but there was a neighbour behind where I used to live in a place called Tullabuddy. Slightly funny name. Uh, the neighbour behind our hedge would not give the ball back, ever. So we lost a lot of balls to that that garden. So I, I, I presume, uh, I'm using artistic licence to presume that at least one of those balls had a knife put through it. Wow. Wow, I'm shocked by that. Uh, Another story, by the way, that caught my eye, Joe, I don't know if you saw this one. Uh, Leo Messi has been ordered to demolish a luxury Barcelona hotel after a £26 million oversight, according to The Mirror. Take that at a face value, if you will. He's got a four-star hotel in Barcelona, which I didn't know about. It's been slapped with a court order, apparently, to be demolished, according to El Confidencial, according to The Mirror, second-hand source (laughs) there, Um, because it doesn't meet city standards. I didn't know Messi had a hotel, and I didn't know that, you know... Um, why is it Bas- four stars yeah why, why not five, five stars That's, yeah. why not seven stars it needs to be seven okay. stars okay Lionel Messi you've got all the money in the world what are you going to build a four star hotel not a five star hotel no what needs to be four stars yeah. I mean Ryan to- though who among us hasn't accidentally misplaced or you know misassigned 26 million dollars right I mean I'll be the last one here to throw a stone I'll just put it that way uh, you, you make a good point, Joe. He's going to have to evade a lot of tax to make up that shortfall uh, when the uh, balance sheet comes around for this year, I'm sure. Anyway, I've probably said far too much there. Why don't we move on uh, to talk about the Bundesliga starting off. Uh, Leverkusen got the biggest win of the weekend, a 7-1 win over Greuther Third, which is still my favourite team name to say in the world. Patrick Schick getting four goals there, Graham. Scotland's favourite player, is that right? No, Patrick no, no. Yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. mention that name. Hmm. Well, one name that's not going to be mentioned around East Germany, Joseph, Jesse Marsh, departing RB Leipzig after 14 games in charge there. They were beaten 2-1 at Union Berlin on Friday. They dropped down to 11th place there. What do we make of that one, Joseph? In terms of results, it's justified, right? RB Leipzig at this point in their 
arc as a club is not a bottom-half Bundesliga club. They're a top-three team in this league. They're certainly a Champions League team that you expect to be in those qualification spots. They're out of the Champions League under Jesse Marsh. They, they're not doing well in the league. And statistically, there have been some dips from last year to this year as well. They were the best defensive team in the league last season under Julian Nagelsmann in terms of expected goals allowed per 90. That stat, expected goals allowed per 90, has almost doubled for Leipzig this year, and they're in the bottom half of the table in terms of that metric. They've been good with the ball, but defensively, it's just not been good enough under Jesse Marsh. RB Leipzig CEO Oliver Mitzlaff gave an interview uh, to the German media earlier, I guess it would be over the weekend, then in, in Derek Ray commentator for ESPN, translated a bunch of it and put it out on his Twitter. And I thought the reasoning behind this and how this went down, how Jesse Marsh's firing went down, is fascinating. So so Oliver Mitzlaff said, We started this season with conviction, but it has emerged that it's not the perfect fit between coach and team. That's standard front, uh, front office, backroom, board, staff speak. We get that part. And then he said, We simply came to the realization, and not just us, but also Jesse, when he came to us and said, I don't know if I'm the right coach for this team, if my philosophy fits with this fantastic squad. And then Oliver Mitzlaff goes on to talk about how they sort of deviated stylistically under Nagelsmann after the Rangnick and, and Ralf Hasenhutl days, meaning that they'd started to become a bit more of a possession team as opposed to the Jesse Marsh, Ralph Rangnick high press, aggressive vertical style. So they deviated slightly and they just didn't have players that were really buying into Jesse Marsh's system. It didn't work. And at the end of the day, Mitzlaff said, we also have to hold the team responsible for that. They weren't ready to take on the convictions of the coach. I paraphrased a little bit at the end there. This whole thing is fascinating to me, not unexpected in the slightest. Results-wise, again, I think it's warranted. But a, a hard situation for Jesse Marsh, who's been in COVID, isolating uh, isolating because of COVID, excuse me. So he hasn't even been coaching the team for the last couple of weeks, and he got a phone call to, to understand what was happening with his future in Leipzig. But it sounds like he was pretty aware of the writing on the wall and maybe even helped write on the wall, which is and, just a little bizarre to me. And and Joe, that the, the key bit of what you said there about the, the Sport Build report, I also read that translation from, from Derek Ray. The key bit for me was about how Marsh twice went to yeah. the RB Leipzig board with doubts over his, not so much his own ability, but his own suitability for, for that group. And I think that is maybe what hastens this decision because I, I, I can only speak for myself, but we... On this, on this podcast, maybe a few times said Leipzig will give him time. And I'll, I'll hold my hands up on this one. There's no way that I thought RB Leipzig would give Marsh until December, despite the fact that results had been poor. He's only been in charge for 14 games, 14 league games. And I, I just thought he would get more time. But that is the insight that we were lacking was that Marsh himself had doubts over his suitability. And, and I think that has to have been a factor in the decision made. 100%. And you look at you look at the squad and some of the signings that they have, going back to what Mitzlaff said, it's a lot of players that have played a different way. And I, I think it's fascinating, another pivot and another, another arc within this story, it's fascinating that Leipzig is sort of admitting, yeah, we're, we're kind of done with that high-pressing thing. I mean, we're still going to press, we're still going to counter-press, because every big team does that now, every team with money does that stuff. But we're actually wanting to be more of a possession-based team. So Ragnick, the, the things that you helped build, and Jesse Marsh, the things that you were trying to build, we're kind of done with that stuff and we're on to something new. And I, I'm curious to know if that's driven by the higher-ups in the organization or if that's driven by the players because, Graham, as you're saying, and as that Derek Ray translation gets at, this was apparently pretty clear that this this match didn't actually fit, it didn't actually work between Jesse Marsh and this team at this point in time. 
Uh, Akin Bielotz, uh, uh, Marsh's former assistant, is going to take charge against Man City in the Champions League this week. Graham, it feels slightly undermanic to fire a coach just a few weeks before the winter break. It's usually uh, the done thing to at least wait until they have some time off, isn't it? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot about this decision that feels um, surprising to me. I, I As I say, I didn't expect that he would get so little time. As you say, the winter break is coming up and the Bundesliga has uh, a big winter break. So that might have been a more convenient time to make a change and, and everything that, that, that Joe says there about the club going in a slightly different, a different direction would lend itself to having a bit more time to get the right person in charge and, and, and have different ideas uh, being communicated to the players. So yeah, it's, it's slightly unusual for Leipzig. I think it's only the second time in their history, or at least their Bundesliga history, that they have sacked a coach mid-season. So it's, it is certainly out of character for them. But looking at the, from the Jesse Marsh side of things, I am very interested to see what he what he does next because I think it's fair to say he's still highly thought of in in Europe so does he stay there will he get another job in in the Bundesliga maybe lower down the Bundesliga does he go back to Austria would he get a job in the Premier League maybe lower lower reaches of the Premier League I've seen there's some suggestions that he might go and help out Ralph Ranić as an assistant at Manchester United but it seems according to reports that Another former uh, Red Bull New York coach <laughs> is going to help Ralph Ranić. Chris Armas is apparently going to Manchester United. Yes, that is correct. You heard that. You heard that right. And also, I think Marsh and Ranić. I've, I've also read they're they're maybe not the best of friends. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to see what Marsh does. I've I've seen people suggest maybe he goes to to MLS. Obviously, there's a there's a a, a few big jobs in in MLS that might appeal personally. I think it would be a shame having built up this reputation to such a point if he now went back to MLS purely because the way I see it, that can come later in his career. He'll get a job in MLS a few years down the line if things doesn't work out, don't work out another job in Europe. But I will certainly be keeping an eye on what his next move is. So what's the next step then, Graham? Say if it is a Premier League gig, is RB Leipzig to say a Brighton sort of level team? Is that Mm -hmm. an appropriate move? Um, I hadn't thought of Brighton. Obviously, that would require Potter to move on, but he's very sought after. So, yeah, that would that, that seems like a good fit. If you, I don't know if you gave that any prior thought, Ryan, but yeah, that's probably <laughs> the club I would have picked out. Yeah, there you go. All right, well, Jesse Marsh, uh, back on the market. Why don't we stick with the Bundesliga though and talk about the big game of the weekend? Der Klassiker, Borussia Dortmund 2, Bayern Munich 3. A very, very entertaining game, excuse me. Very open, very attacking, lots of high press, lots of exposed defences, lots of pigeons on the field for quite a lot of it for some reason as well. (laughs) Uh, Before this one started, we only had a point separating the two teams. Now, of course, we have a four-point lead for Bayern after getting their win, which had some control controversy to it. Um, We also had some attendances limited here for COVID restrictions uh, due to the disappointingly low vaccination rate in Germany, but that's another story. Uh, The goals here came from uh, Julian Brad and Erling Haaland, then Kinsey Coman with Robert Lewandowski getting Bayern's first and third goals. Uh, His third goal penalty against his former employer, that was the 40th goal of the calendar year for Mr Lewandowski, his 16th of the season. Controversy, Graham, uh, (laughs) with, with the penalty there. Marco Rose being sent to the stands for the red card and uh, Jude Bellingham after the game yeah. saying some things. Yeah, that's right. So basically at the core of Dortmund's anger was um, an inconsistency, as they saw it, with regards to the use of the VAR. So the referee used the VAR to check a potential foul 
um, or sorry, refused to use the VR to, to check a potential foul by Lucas Hernandez or Marcos Royce. But it, he did use it to spot a handball by Mats Hummels that, that led to Lewandowski's penalty winner. The, the, the Hummels handball, I think, was, was clear. I think that was a penalty. However, the, the Hernandez-Royce incident really could have gone either way. I, I personally thought it was a, a penalty. I think he clat, clatters into the back of, of Royce. He's not in control of his, his body, uh, Lucas Hernandez. So I can certainly see why Dortmund were, were angry about that. And after the match, Jude Bellingham, um, he, he had a lot to say. Um, to quote him, he said, you give a, a referee that has match-fixed before the biggest game game in Germany, what do you expect? Um, as soon as I heard that, I knew that he was going to be in trouble. He'll get a pretty significant match ban and a fine, I, w- I, w- I would think. And I was reading this morning that the German police have also opened an investigation against Bellingham for his comments. And he was referring to uh, Felix Zweier's, sorry if I've butchered that pronunciation, Zweier, is that correct? Zweier. Yeah, he had a six-month ban by the the German FA in 2005 following his role in a a match-fixing scandal. So it would, to me, just given my opinion, it would seem peculiar that a referee that has been found guilty of of being involved in match-fixing is still a referee in German football, but admittedly, I, I don't know much beyond the kind of surface-level stuff of the situation. Uh, the strangest detail of that story, Graham, surely, is that you, you're quite right. He was suspended for six months, Felix Tavaya, uh, for his role um, in, in a bribery scandal in the early 2000s. The amount I saw was €300. Euros. He was yeah. an assistant referee who was by bribed €300. Euros. Make it worth your while if you're going <laughs> to do something like that. Come on! Yeah. Yeah, I also thought that for 300 euros, you know, com- completely tarnish your whole career. Maybe not, maybe not worth it. <laughs> that's barely one Premier League match ball, Graham. I mean, that's not even that's oh. Like anything. Oh. <laughs> Joseph Lowry cuts to the core. I love it. Uh, Joe, how about Borussia Dortmund in this one? Um, poor defending on their part for the first two goals. Mats Hummels, uh, perhaps another defender who didn't have a great weekend after the one we mentioned at the top of the show, certainly for the opener in this one. Oh man, you got to feel for Matt Hummels in this game. It is a mistake from him in possession that leads to Lewandowski's first goal. That's the equalizer for Bayern Munich inside of the first 10 minutes. And then the second goal, Rafael Guerrero just clears the ball right into Matt Hummels' stomach. And that makes it far too easy for Kingsley Coman to score. And then the third goal, it's the handball on Matt Hummels. So the second one's certainly not his fault. Even the third one, really not his fault. But it's never it, good when a, a defensive performance is so bad that it's verging on comical. Yeah, it, it, you could have some yakety sacks in the background of a little compilation of Matt Hummels in this game. Not an ideal performance from him. For Dortmund, though, there were things to be excited about and things to appreciate in this game. Certainly as a neutral, there were those things. And I think for Dortmund fans as well. For me, the the biggest and most exciting thing was Erling Holland versus Dio Upamecano. Man, that matchup, that 1v1 matchup. So often in soccer, it's not easy to just say like, okay, the left winger is going to be driving against the right winger. It's not as cut and dry as as we often make it out to be because of how fluid soccer is and how much movement there is on the field offensively and defensively for both teams. But we did get plenty of Erling Haaland against Upamecano. Upamecano playing as the center center back in a back three, at least when Bayern Munich had the ball. And so when Dortmund would transition, at times he would still get that same look before Bayern could shift into their back four shape and rotate, uh, and rotate excuse me, Alfonso Davies back to left back. But we would get these Holland 1v1s against Upamecano. And Upamecano is a physically gifted center back. He's technically gifted as well, don't get me wrong. But he is he's fast and he is physical as Julian Brandt, who was concussed in a in a one v one against Upamecano, and Brandt is all right. He's he's stable. But as as Julian Brandt found out painfully in this game, Upamecano is a, a big guy. 
And just watching those two players go one-on-one was so much fun. This game was a track meet between those guys and between Kings of Komen and Leroy Sané, who was who were playing as these inverted, narrow, tucked-in wingers for Bayern Munich. Then you got Alfonso Davies on the left. There was so much speed on the field, and it was most borne out in Holland versus Upamecano. But it was it was a track meet, and this game be- between that and the refereeing controversy, and between the goals and the defensive mistakes, this and was the pigeons. in the pigeons. Sorry, I, I can't believe I forgot the pigeons. This was one of my favorite games of the season so far. Wow, that's a good review. I don't disagree with that, Joe. It was very very entertaining stuff. Uh, Upper Meccano, um there was a good matchup with Erling Haaland, but maybe didn't do himself proud. Looked a bit unreliable at times. At, at times, certainly, but. Man, the, the commentators were talking about it, and, and Lutz was on the mic, and, and he said something to the effect of, you know, I can't think of any worse thing than Erling Holland breathing down your neck. And, and that's true. I genuinely believe that. Maybe killing Mbappe would be the only other thing that I think would apply there. It's, it's a hard matchup, and I don't know that... Bayern Munich weren't excellent in this game. They were good, and they, they showed well in moments, but Upamecano and the rest of, of the squad, they certainly weren't flawless. They struggled to play through Dortmund's high press, but just as Bayern struggled with that, Dortmund did too. Dortmund really had a hard time playing through playing through a, a Bayern Munich's high press. And Matt Hummels had a pretty poor giveaway. Oh, no, uh, sorry, Emre Chan, excuse me, had a pretty poor giveaway looking for Matt Hummels that Kingsley Coman intercepted in the first half that almost led to another goal for Bayern Munich. So mistakes on, on both sides of this one for me, Ryan. Can, can you imagine how terrified those pigeons were with Erling Haaland <laughs> running towards them? They just thought they'd find a nice bit of grass and then, yeah. oh my God, this Norwegian. He's oh, celebrating. Great. Run away, guys. Fly away. <laughs> That's the one thing worse than him breathing down your neck, by the way. If he scores and he's celebrating, he's looking for someone to bear hug. <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious! Giorena's just glad he's not quite match fit yet because that's been him before. He's been on the on the receiving right. end of that quote unquote hug. Silver lining for Reina <laughs> there, definitely. Graham, what did you make of this one? Um, Borussia Dortmund's uh, strike force very impressive here, but not without um, inconsistency inconsistency at the back, which is very Borussia Dortmund. Yeah, and and I think um, a lot of the focus on this match was obviously on Erling Haaland, who is is back from hip injury. Finally, now I think his second game back, back after injury. Um, I swear he's not human because they initially said he would miss this match, and then they went further and said that he would be out for the the rest of the year. And not only is he was he back for this match, but he was he was pretty relentless for the time that he was on the pitch. And when he was taken off the pitch, I think with ten minutes to go or maybe it was slightly longer he he wasn't happy about it he felt he still had a lot to 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 contribute and he gave Dortmund the the sort of outlet that they have lacked for a number of weeks in his absence and obviously he scored a brilliant equalizer the camera angle for the the equalizer was absolutely perfect as soon as, as soon as it's played to him you knew exactly where that ball was going into the into the far corner of the net Manuel Neuer is not out of position he's at full stretch and he gets absolutely nowhere near it it was a sensational finish but if there's there's one downside to having Haaland um back it's that I I felt Dortmund were sometimes a little guilty of looking to release him a little too quickly at times rather than building through the midfield and with the abs with the Joshua Kimmich not being in this Bayern Munich team I thought that gave Dortmund a chance to control the center of the pitch and while while Dahoo and, and Bellingham did, they did okay. I, I I never felt like they had that control and maybe having Haaland um on the shoulder of the last defender and ov- obviously Bayern Munich play an exceptionally high line as well. 
that's one of the things that makes them so entertaining for me is that yeah they play brilliant attacking football but there's that there's that risk and reward sort of thing with with Bayern Munich where they play so high that a player like Haaland it, it just it's going to take one good pass for him to get in behind but Dortmund I just felt were a little bit quick to look for that pass when they might have been better establishing a platform slightly further up the pitch uh, with possession. Oh you're asking him to slow down Graham careful careful <laughs> that's not what they're about <laughs> no I've never asked Erlen Hallen to slow down <laughs> indeed uh, Joe one name we haven't really mentioned Robert Lewandowski with two goals here that penalty the, the hop skip and jump was a little close to stopping in his run I felt a little dicey a little dicey right yeah. uh, I mean we see that with a lot of players now and I was I was a little surprised to see the the jump that pronounced but it, it ended up working out just fine for Lewandowski who I don't know. I think he just constantly lives in this sort of I was snubbed by the Ballon d'Or voting committee rage. And he lives in that all the time because he has not slowed down. I believe the stat was that the number was this was his 200th Bundesliga game that he scored in 200 guys. That's so many games over such a long period of time, and he does not stop. He can drop and link play. He can stay high. He can press. He can be an outlet. He's quick. Nothing I'm going to say is going to shine any new light on Robert Lewandowski because he is just that good, and he has been that good for that long. And that's why he's striker of the year. Oh yes! Hey. Oh yes! The all-important striker of the year award. Graham. Yeah, they're just gonna—they're just gonna keep making up like contrived new awards every year to avoid giving them the Ballon d'Or. So next year he's going to be uh, best football player over six foot who uh, <laughs> wears boots on both feet award. Um, yeah, they're just gonna keep making up silly awards. Mm. Erling Haaland might be in for that one. That'll be hotly contested, Graham. So we'll see about that. Um, my final question for this one, Graham. Um, we, ha- as I said, we had a point between these two teams before the start. We now have a little mm-hmm. bit more of a gap. Do Dortmund have what it takes to run by and close this nope. season? No. Okay. Good. <laughs> I wrote a piece about this a week ago, and and yeah, you're right. There was a point between the two teams. I just don't. I just. Um, don't get the sense still that there's a title race at the top of uh, the Bundesliga. I know Bayern Munich have had a couple of, of poor defeats. They they lost to Eintracht Frankfurt early in the season and they lost recently to Augsburg. Is that correct? Um, so they, they do kind of have these blips, but they're, they're just, in my opinion, by far away the, the best team in Germany. As Joe said, they didn't really play all that well in this match, and yet they still got an away win against their closest title challenger. So I think that says a lot. It was Augsburg. Good memory there, Graham. Um, all right, that's the Bundesliga. When we come back, let's talk about MLS playoffs. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Let's talk MLS playoffs, why don't we? The MLS Conference Finals. Joe, Portland 2, Real Salt Lake 0. RIP Yankee Stadium MLS Cup Final. We hardly knew ye. Uh, Felix Mora and uh, Santiago Moreno with the goals here. Joe, what did you make of this one? A deserved win for Portland, surely. Absolutely. And they will be in MLS Cup for the third time, and it'll be their first time hosting Providence Park's first time hosting. It's going to be an incredible atmosphere in that game on Saturday, I would imagine, that MLS Cup final. 100% deserved winners here for Portland. They took the RSL team of destiny narrative and shoved it in the trash can. They were they were fortunate <laughs> to get that early goal that just bounces off of Felipe Mora and, and finds the back of the net. And to be honest, they're a little fortunate to get that Santiago Moreno goal in the second half to make it 2-0. It's a great bit of skill and brilliant work by Moreno to pick out the near post, shooting from distance well outside the box. But it hits the post and then hits off of David Ochoa's back and then goes into the back of the net. You don't see that happening a whole lot. So the goals are a, a bit fortunate. But the run of play, there's no question for me that Portland dominated, basically dominated Real Salt Lake. They didn't allow RSL to create many chances. RSL go for it with their subs. They bring on some attackers and just really push numbers forward, even down to 10 men. But it was never going to be enough. RSL did not create enough. Portland defensively were good and solid and and didn't allow those chances. And they looked somewhat dangerous with the ball, which overall has not really... The the, the balance between defending and attacking has not really been there for Portland this year, even down the stretch. And I, I, I saw it more in this game than I had in maybe any other for them in a long while, right? I, I imagine that uh, Seattle Sounders fans were that Larry David conflicted gif watching <laughs> uh, David Ochoa <laughs> concede that goal to the Portland Timbers. <laughs> the worst of both worlds. The worst of both worlds. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, but Moreno, Joe, um, a product of the under-22 under initiative, excuse me, um, uh, doing well for that initiative, I would say, a real star in this game. He was unreal in this game. Man, he looked dangerous. So he started on the left side of Gio Savarese's 4-2-3-1 that shifts back into a 4-4-2 defensively. He started on the left because Dairon Espria was was out with a red card in this game. So he's he's not really been the first choice guy for Portland on that wing this season. 21-year-old Colombian player. And he's starting on the left. All he wants to do, and he did it very well, all he wants to do is get the ball on his right foot and cut inside. That's what he wants to do. He made that look dangerous over and over again. He carved through Real Salt Lake on multiple occasions in this game. One of my favorite moments from him was 31st minute. He gets on the ball on the left, cuts inside, gets it on his right foot, and then slips a ball in behind into the box for Marvin Loria, who is his... Uh, opposite winger in this game, but there was some fluidity there for Portland. Moreno has that moment, and then, of course, he has the goal, which, as I mentioned, was brilliant and, and a great strike from him. Fortunate that it finds the back of the net, but he was he was a thorn in RSL's side all game long. They had very few answers for him. Aaron Herrera, starting as the right back for RSL, had a hard time dealing with almost anybody on that side. It was an uncharacteristic performance from Aaron Herrera, who ended up with double yellow cards and, and was sent off, and his season is over, as is his team season. But man, I was incredibly impressed by Moreno, as I think a lot of folks who watched this game were. I'm hoping that we see him start in MLS Cup, and I'm hoping that we see a lot more of him next season than we did this season. 
Yes, likewise. Graham, your thoughts on Portland? Also, their kits with the half green, half black dealy going on. That was nice, wasn't it? Yep, I, I like Portland's kits. In general, I think Portland have, have pretty nice kits. And I think Gio Savaresi has, has built a team that's almost tailor-made for the, the playoffs in the way that they can they can play in a number of different ways. You know, they're, they're comfortable uh, kind of playing on the counter or sitting deep. And, and I think they did that at times. And, and even though they did control a lot of this match, there was still that threat on, on the break. And, you know, the, the, as I say, they're good at controlling games with the ball. And they have players like Blanco who can come up with, with moments of magic and... As Joe references, over the course of the the regular season, um, and I have to admit, I I haven't watched, I didn't watch all that much of them over the regular season, um, but they they kind of lacked the consistency. But time and time again, they they find it in in the playoffs, and and it's a bit of a trend for teams in the Pacific Northwest in general. I mean, if you look through who's won that that Western Conference in recent years, it goes. Um, well, Portland Timbers this year, Seattle Sounders, Seattle Sounders, Portland Timbers, Seattle Sounders, Seattle Sounders, Portland Timbers, and then you have to go all the way back to uh, to the LA Galaxy in 2014 when Chivas USA were still an MLS franchise. So that uh, that feels like a long time ago. And uh, so basically, the rule is if you want a, a winning uh, franchise, MLS franchise, set it up in the Pacific Northwest, which is uh, bad news for David Beckham. <laughs> I have one welcome, our Cascadia overlords, Graham. Um, Joe, a note on uh, Salt Lake here. Uh, with all due respect and apologies to our Utah listeners, does this show that you can't poop house your way to a championship in MLS? It shows that it's hard to do that. I, I totally think you can. I think RSL were very, very close in in the grand scheme of things to making it all the way to MLS Cup. They're obviously just one game away. And it wasn't as if things weren't unfixable for RSL in this game. There were some pretty clear issues that just never got resolved in this one. Over and over again in possession, they were looking to play direct, which is fine, but they weren't really recovering possession then and turning it into meaningful work in the final third. So that didn't work so much. And it's not as if Portland's defensive block is impenetrable. That has been their biggest weakness this season, defending in open play, along with defending on set pieces, just defending in general. There's space to be exploited if you're going against Portland Timbers' 4-4-2 block. And RSL made very little effort to exploit that. They had Pablo Ruiz trying to distribute, and, and he's had some clean diagonal balls, but n- not a ton really ever came from those. They had Justin Glad, right center back, forcing balls forward. And then a wrinkle in this one for RSL was Albert Rusnak coming back from COVID. And he started on the left, and the left should be in italics and bolded and in air quotes when you're when you're hearing that word. Because he goes where he wants to go, and he drops to get on the ball. And I felt like that really disrupted RSL's rhythm in this game, having to reincorporate Albert Rusnak into this team and, and getting him back into the way they've been playing, both defensively and in possession. He couldn't get touches higher up the field because RSL were moving the ball too slowly and they didn't have enough off-ball movement. So then Rusnak drops deep and decides to get on the ball, but then he he was just a ball stopper, taking too long to try and organize or try to find a perfect pass, and everything was too slow for RSL, except for Anderson Julio, who went a thousand miles an hour on the right wing every time he got the ball. It just didn't fit together for RSL, and some some more coordinated ball movement and some quicker movement of the ball in possession, I think, would have gone a long way for them in this game, but Alas, it is the end of the David Ochoa show for Real Salt Lake. It is indeed. Joe, Portland finished the regular season in fourth. They were, you know, not terribly far off the pace of Colorado, set six points off of Colorado in the end. Is it justice that Portland are the champions of the West? I know obviously they beat Colorado to get to this spot, but you know what I'm saying? Is it, is it, a, is it, has justice been done with, uh, with Portland in this position? 
Playoff justice, yes. Regular season and looking at this year holistically, no, not at all. I think the top three seeds in the West were all on the whole better teams than Portland, but th- that doesn't matter, right? This we all agree when we go into watch playoffs and when these teams come into the playoff season, that that stuff is done. That stuff is over. RSL proved that. Portland proved that. The, the the regular season does not matter. Yes, playing at home is a massive advantage, and I think we saw that bear out a little bit here for Portland. But it's that part's over. It's on to the next, and it's you you lose and you're done. And everybody has to accept that. Portland in this in this season in general, we're not the best team of Major League Soccer. That said, they are on an incredible run right now. The last third of the Major League Soccer season, now into the postseason, they have been very good in terms of results. I'm still not fully convinced with a lot of the things we're seeing defensively, but they were good in this game. I have no complaints about what they did here in this game. And I don't think they care one bit about what I have to say about how they've defended and what the underlying numbers look like. They're one game away from winning MLS Cup. And they did this in this game in particular against RSL without Sebastian Blanco. And he was on the bench. He was ready to come into this game at least for a little bit. But they didn't need him. They didn't need to use his legs. They didn't need to test that that uh, that leg injury that he suffered against the Colorado Rapids on Thanksgiving. So Gio Savarese can save him for that that MLS Cup final on Saturday. And he has a chance to run out Blanco and Santiago Moreno and Jimmy Chara and Felipe Mora. And that attacking foursome, if that is indeed what Gio Savarese decides to go for, could do some real damage. So Portland, they're doing their thing, Ryan. Whether it's just or not, they are doing their thing. They surely are, and they will be hosting MLS Cup next Saturday, as you mentioned, Jared, at their former baseball stadium, Providence Park, lest we forget, baseball stadium. Uh, Graham, anything more on this game before we move to the East? Just that I'm going to defend Providence Park from the, the baseball. It is no, in no way the same as Yankee Stadium. <laughs> in fact, Providence Park is one of the best. I tweeted this out over the weekend. It's one of the best places that I have ever watched uh, a, a soccer match. It is weird and it's lopsided and you would never design it that way from scratch. But it's it's just got something. It's got character about it. And obviously the Timbers Army make a uh, hell of a noise. So I am pleased that it's that's going to host MLS Cup for the first time. Am I right in saying? Yep. This is the first yep. time it'll be hosting. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm pleased that it's going to be a, a suitable setting for that match. Indeed it will be. It, it is a great stadium. I am, I'm talking in jest, of course, Graham. Uh, we'll move over now to the East. Uh, Philadelphia Union 1, NYCFC 2. The Union, of course, hampered by COVID issues here. They had 11 players out. They made six changes to the lineup from the conference semi-win over Nashville, including uh, goalkeeper Andre Blake who uh, is a meme star as well as a goalkeeper these days, of course. Uh, Joe, what did we make of this one? NYCFC going all the way. I'll tell you what I'll call up right away. Um, MLS tweeting that this was NYCFC's first trophy. It's not a trophy, is it? I mean, they do get a trophy for winning a conference, and I think that goes in a trophy cabinet somewhere, but it's not the one they want, right? It's not either of the two that they want, Supporter Shield or MLS Cup. Man, you got to feel for the Philadelphia Union in this game, right? And you just laid out the circumstances for them. Uh, all those players missing due to the league's health and safety protocols. It sounded like, from what Jim Curtin said after the game, that all of those players are healthy. And as a human, that's good, and we want that. And I'm glad that they're all healthy. And it seemed like there was some some disappointment, some frustration at the league's protocols because in another league, in another world, those guys might have been able to play. But setting those those other circumstances aside, just missing that many players, six starters, as you mentioned, Ryan, from that last playoff game, that's brutal. And so the Union come in, they're playing at home, yes, but they're, they're underdogs in terms of personnel. 
And they put up a heck of a fight, guys. They were shifting side to side. They gave NYCFC almost nothing. They, they moved so well defensively in that 4-3-2-1 shape. They funneled the ball towards NYCFC's fullbacks. They trapped, they collapsed, they pressured, they attacked directly. I think Jim Curtin had to be so pleased with his team's performance and incredibly bummed that they couldn't actually see this one through because I, I think they executed their game plan, Philadelphia did, a lot better than NYCFC executed theirs, and the result just didn't go their way. Yeah, and, and I have a, uh, a huge amount of respect for the way that Philly and Jim Curtin dealt with the, the blow of losing a good chunk of their team in terms of what they had to say after the match. Maybe maybe I missed some quotes, but some from, from the quotes that I saw... You know, it would have been very easy and justifiable had he blamed their defeat on the circumstances. A whole season of really strong work spoiled by an uh, unprecedented pandemic is, uh, you know, it's not something you can really legislate for. But Curtin, from what I saw, completely maintained his dignity and, and um, you know, praised NYCFC. There was a bit of a spiky comment about their, their uh, what was it, oil, oil money, money locker yeah. room or something <laughs> like that. But but besides that, he uh, I think he conducted himself with dignity because their their chances were kind of spoiled before kickoff in this game. I didn't realise that NYCFC also refer to themselves as the city's ends, like Man City do as well. Oh, did they? Yeah, I've seen that knocking around. I'm not sure how I feel about that. No. Joe, just a a touch more on Philly. Um, We saw the 4-3-2-1 here, and you talk about the way they executed their game plan. Can you expand on that? And I'm I'm always sceptical when I see the Christmas tree, Joe. First off, I think a lot of times when formations are labeled as a Christmas tree, they're not really. And it's just a 4-3-3 and we're just looking for an excuse to, to talk about something a little bit different or to, to I don't know, to, to provide a slightly different point of conversation. Why do you hate Christmas, show? I don't. I don't hate Christmas, Graham. Uh, <laughs> but, but I think in this case for the Union, it, it, is, it is actually a different shape than the 4-3-3. So in this game and for the last chunk of the season and in the past for the Union, Jim Curtin's used this setup. And he has one high number nine in this game was Casper Shabilko. And then two tents underneath him. Not not winners, not not one single attacking midfielder, but two of them just inside and just below the number nine. Just outside, excuse me, and just below the number nine. And so they defend in this very narrow shape. There's more width in the midfield three behind those players. In this game, it was Jose Martinez as the six, and then Leon Flack and Jack McGlynn to either side of him. They're just expanding out each line. So you've got the nine as the one, then you have the two attacking midfielders as the two, then the midfield three, and then the back four. Naturally, the space is on the wings for the union, and they're willing to leave that space, and and they have specific mechanisms to go and trap the ball in that space, but they want to protect the middle of the field. And it's worked brilliantly for them throughout the playoffs and, and for larger stretches of the season in general. They've been one of the best defensive teams in all of Major League Soccer this season. They've stopped pressing high quite as much. They've conserved a little bit of energy and not stepping forward. And instead, they'll step laterally to bait you into, and they baited NYCFC into finding Tavon Gray on the right or finding Amundsen on the left, their left back in this game, and then going to trap or banking on their fullbacks being able to win those 1v1 defensive battles against NYCFC's fullbacks. And I thought it worked to a T in this game, almost with the exception of that goal that Maxi Morales, Maxi Morales sprays out wide to the left, fourth or Aronson, and then Olivia Mbizo gets done on that side, and then Tyus Magno taps in, and that's the winner in the 88th minute, and the Union are done. So by and large, I thought the game plan worked really well, and that Christmas tree played out exactly how Jim Curtin wanted it to, with the exception of that 88th minute goal, and maybe a couple other sequences in this game. Graham, a note on your close personal friend, Ronnie Daler, and um, NYCFC's performance here, scoring all the goals technically here with Alexander Cullens getting the own goal for the opener as well. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I, Ronnie Dial, I think, deserves a, a lot of credit for his work with this NYCFC team. Yes, I uh, do like him as a person, and I got on well with him when he worked in Scotland. I thought he was harshly treated here, here in Scotland. But he's he's a good coach, um, and I think even his in-game management here with the, the changes he makes, the, the triple change he makes, which obviously precedes the goal, but nonetheless those changes, uh, sorry, the Philly goal, I should say, precedes the Philly goal, but those changes still set NYCFC up well for the, the final third of that match. And uh, yeah, I think he he has kind of proved to NYCFC in the, in the first stage of their existence as a franchise, they were very much about signing big names and Villas and Pirlos and Lampards. They had Patrick Vieira, and even though Patrick Vieira was, was a pretty good coach for NYCFC, Diala has kind of transitioned them into a new era where it's all about building the team. And I think he's done a, a really good job of, of building that team. And you could see at stages towards the end of the regular season that they were going to be a force in the playoffs. So I'm not too surprised that they have made MLS Cup. There we go. Portland versus NYCFC is your MLS Cup coming up on Saturday. Joseph Lowry, uh, we are going to be previewing that game later on in the Total Soccer Show feed, right? Oh, yeah, baby. Get ready, folks. I think the plan is to talk about that game. I know the plan is to talk about that game and look ahead, maybe to take some questions as well. So if you have questions about the MLS season in general or about the playoffs or about MLS Cup specifically, uh, hit us up with them either on the Total Soccer Show website, totalsoccershow.com, or on Twitter at Total Soccer Show. Marvellous. And Joe, of course, as is customary with you, you'll be giving a full prediction for that game as well, won't you? Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. Detailed predictions. I've got so much in, in of course, the scoreline. All right. I'm going to bet my mortgage on it. Sounds good. It will not. Thank you very much, Joe. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a look around the Premier League and the rest of Europe. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Total Soccer Show, we are back. Let's talk Premier League, guys. Liverpool jumped to second place with the last gasp win at Wolves. Divock Origi coming up once again, maintaining his streak of only scoring massively consequential goals in the 94th minute of that one. Uh, Man City going top of the pile, meanwhile. Uh, Watford nil, Man City three, the scoreline there. Uh, Bernardo Silva once again proving he is flavour of the month. A superb third goal in that one. Watford, Graham, have now lost their last 14 games against Man City, including an 8-0 and 2 6 nils. So if you were a betting person, you might have predicted the way this one was going to go. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Dilly ding, dilly dong. <laughs> indeed. Not so what? hot for Mr. Ranieri. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a Claudio Ranieri thing, isn't it? <laughs> That's what he says, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> just roll with it. I was really hoping it was just something that Graham said, and I just missed it before. Okay, no, It's a very yeah. common British catchphrase, Joe. That's what I, I was hoping, right? That's what I was hoping. <laughs> And Manchester United's new era got started under Mr. Ralph Ranić with a 1-0 home win over Crystal Palace. The first home clean sheet of the season. Goodness me. It does look like a very <laughs> different team as well, doesn't it, Graham? There was pressing. There was, I saw Ronaldo trying some pressing. Actual effective pressing. Particularly in the first half, United looked pretty good here. They forced Palace to give up possession a few times and looked pretty solid at the back. Um, what's going on here? Yeah, so the, the first thing to say is, Let's not get carried away too quickly here. This is a minor, a 1-0 win at home over Crystal Palace, who have been decent this season, but you know there are better teams in the Premier League. So before I kind of wax lyrical about what Ranić has done as a very, in a, in a very short space of time, that's the caveat. But this was a much bigger impact from Ranić than I was expecting on this team, given that he's only had one full training session with them. I mean, within the first 10 minutes... It was clear that there was the trademark 4-2-2-2 formation. I always have to count the twos when reading that one out. Um, that that shape was there. As you say, they were, they were pressing pretty well as a unit. They were winning the ball high up the pitch. They won the ball in the final third 12 times in this match, which is their, their highest of the season. Their previous highest was a game against Newcastle where they won it seven times. So close to kind of double their their, their, their previous highest uh, number. And um, yeah, there was a fluidity to the way Rashford and Sancho was playing. And as I say, it was it was much closer to Ranyet ball than I was expecting from this match. Now, their, their level did drop off in the second half, which is to be expected given the intensity of how they had played that first half. And it was similar to how Xavi's Barcelona dropped off in his first match. That the, the team's just not used to playing at that level of intensity. But... I thought there was a lot of uh, things to encourage Ranić from this performance. Um, if we're calling it Ranić ball, are they now RB Manchester, Graham? It's only a matter of time. I mean, if Chris Armas is rocking up there as well, then <laughs> it's already happening. Goodness me. Um, you said don't get too excited, but Joe, I actually had a look at Manchester United's upcoming fixtures, hosting young boys midweek, uh, away to Norwich, away to Brentford, hosting Brighton, and then going to Newcastle. There's some opportunities for Mr Ranić to uh, rack up some points there, Joe. 100%. This it's I think it's it's important as a manager to come in and build some momentum. It helps build buy-in and this upcoming schedule could be the perfect opportunity for Rangnick to to have all that play out. Indeed. Uh, Southampton drew 1-1 with Brighton thanks to another late goal from Neil Morpé. A 98th minute win as uh, equaliser, I should say, uh, rebound from a set piece. Um, he did exactly the same thing midweek, Graham, uh, against West Ham. A 1-1 draw there. Same result, same Morpé. Uh, good stuff. Also, uh, congratulations to Saudi Arabia hosting a great Formula One race and getting their first win of the season, 1-0 over Burnley this weekend. Uh, their first win in game week 15. Uh, no side in Premier League history has failed to win until December and avoided relegation. So I'm sure everybody out there is touting for um, Saudi-owned Newcastle United. Right, Graham? Yeah? 
<laughs> yeah, the neutral's favourite. The neutral's <laughs> favourite, indeed. Uh, perhaps more favourited by the neutral's Aston Villa. Uh, a 2-1 win over Leicester for them. Stevie G back on track. Uh, very controversial um, goal not given here, Joe. I don't know if you saw this one. Uh, Villa had a goal disallowed by Jacob Ramsey. Casper Schmeichel had one hand on the ball, which was deemed to be control. Uh, but it seems Stockley Park got that one wrong. Um, Graham or Joe, do you want to dig into the rules on that one or explain it a little more well I, i've got some thoughts uh, thoughts thoughts and notes on on this joe so do you, do you mind me jumping in here oh please do graham there are a few things that i enjoy less than a referee controversy and i'm glad you <laughs> took it with the to classicer earlier this one's all yours okay so th- this was this was a, a a really strange one and and dale johnson who works for espn he always does on a monday morning a, a good thread of the vr decisions from the weekend and this was a particularly interesting one so to my mind in terms of what my interpretation of the laws should be should and shouldn't allow and i'm not sure ifab takes my views into consideration but this this goal should have stood because to my eye Casper Schmeichel isn't in control of the ball. He's got his fingers to it. He's barely kind of keeping it in position. He's had his fingertips on the ball for a split second. And while I appreciate this is subjective, that's a loose ball in in my mind. However, and Dale Johnson's uh, thread has a lot of detail on this, that the law says that a, a keeper is in control, quote, by touching it with any part of the hands or arms. And then even more specifically in the referee guidelines, it says, quote, if the goalkeeper handles the ball again after it has been released from his possession and has not touched any other player, the goalkeeper is considered to be in control of the ball by touching it with any part of his hands or arms. Which seems to me... Not a great rule or law, but um, it may well be the case that that law was correctly applied. I just think much like that weird offside law that exists at the moment, it, it maybe needs clarified, clarified, clarified clar- ugh, can't speak all of a sudden, Easy clarified for you to say, slightly. Easy for you to say. <laughs> um, yeah, it, this one, they were talking about it a lot on NBC on the coverage there as well. And it, they seem to be suggesting because a, a save had been made previously, he wasn't in control and that the VAR didn't show the referee the previous save. And that was how um, they got it wrong. But I'm already bored talking about this because that's the villain one anyway. <laughs> so why don't we move on? Um, West Ham 3, Chelsea 2. Uh, Chelsea were top of the table they were at the start of the weekend if uh, memory serves me correct and now um, Man City and Liverpool going ahead of them because of this one East versus West in London here um, Mazuaku getting that crazy cross cub shot winner Graham for this one yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what what's happened with Edward Mendy because obviously he gives away the the penalty for the first goal, even though he has he has put in difficulty by. Jorginho with his back pass and by the way since the campaign for Jorginho to win the Ballon d'Or really gathered momentum about a couple months ago he's missed a penalty that could cost Italy their place at the World Cup he gifted Jadon Sancho a goal for Manchester United and now this horror show against West Ham but but he's the third best player in the world so we can't question him I guess (laughs) um but yeah this was this was a bizarre performance by Chelsea not so long ago I used to say that one of their best qualities under Tuchel was they had a variety of different approaches and Tuchel went through a period of, do you remember early in the season he went through a period of changing games with substitutes from the bench? from And, and it just seems like he has kind of lost that ability. They, they don't really have much of a plan B. Lukaku, his role in this team is peculiar because he's not, I know he's been injured, but he was on the bench for this game. It doesn't seem they know how to get the best out of him. So I, th- I think maybe for the first time in Tuchel's 
um, Chelsea reign, he has some pretty serious questions to answer. But nonetheless, I think they're, what, two points off the top of the Premier League table? So it's it's not a complete disaster. I want to add just a, a beat there, Graham, about some concerns. And it's it's not a complete disaster. They're still in title contention. The, the season is not over for Chelsea. But John Muller had a tweet about... Chelsea's expected goal difference, which just relates to how many expected goals they're putting together versus how many they're allowing their opposition to put together. Through 15 weeks of the Premier League season, uh, Tuchel's XG differential for this Chelsea team is 0.68. In Under Lampard in 2020, through 15 weeks, it was 0.79. And in 2019, under Frank Lampard, it was 0.82. So it's at least 0.11 lower than either of those first 15 weeks under Frank Lampard in either of the last two seasons. There are worrying signs in Chelsea right now. Just to be clear, Joe, you don't want to talk about controversial refereeing decisions that lead to or get goals struck off, but XG differential, that gives you the fizz. Correct. Yes. You've, <laughs> wow, Ryan, you nailed that. Like That's real insight into my psyche. I know we talked about Graham's psyche earlier, at least I did. Wow, good work. Just what, just glad to know where we stand on that one. But you're, you're quite right. I, I wouldn't necessarily sound the alarm bells, but you know, Chelsea did look pretty poor midweek against Burnley. A lot of, I don't know if you call it sterile possession, but they were pretty ineffective in this game as well and quite sloppy at times. So a bit to worry about for Chelsea. But Graham, how about West Ham? We've got to give them credit here. Yeah. Um, you know, they've beaten Liverpool, Chelsea and Spurs at home and they are gunning for the Champions League. Pretty incredible stuff from David Moyes. Yep, and I thought one of the most impressive things about this performance was this This was a, a bit of a must-win match for them if they were to really challenge for the top four because they had had they had suffered a, a couple of bad results, a couple of bad performances, and yet a lot of teams would have maybe f- froze up with that pressure and that expectation, but it actually seemed to embolden them a lot in this match, and, and they were really at it from, from the start, even when they went behind. I thought Jared Bowen had another good game for West Ham before his inevitable uh, £45 million move to Liverpool next summer. Uh, watching him play, he kind of sums up, for me, how West Ham have, have changed under David Moyes. So Moyes was previously seen as, uh, well, he was the ghost of Stralitz Ferguson previously, but before that he was uh, a, an organiser, very orthodox. He would keep things solid. He would hit the wings, crosses into the box, kind of meat and potatoes football. But now this West Ham team play very proactively and I think Bowen is a bit of a pressing machine. He's one of those forwards who also plays in the half spaces so he's not a winger he's not a center forward and I just don't think Moyes would have liked a player like him a few seasons ago and and so I think he kind of proves how Moyes to his credit has adapted his his approach at West Ham over the last couple of seasons yeah definitely in the preseason previews we did on Total Soccer Show I'm pretty sure I covered West Ham and I was very dismissive of their attacking line they've only got Mikel Antonio as a threat and here they are making me look silly, as if I don't do as good enough a job of that <laughs> myself. But yeah, good good guns going, going good guns for West Ham there. 3-2 over Chelsea in that one. Um, let's stay in London for a moment. Graham, did you catch the Women's FA Cup final? Arsenal nil, Chelsea 3. At least Chelsea did get a result this weekend. Uh, they clinched the domestic treble for the first time, and it was their third FA Cup win at Wembley. Congrats to Emma Hayes and her team. Yes, I, d- I did watch this match, actually, and... Uh... One of, one of the, the things about this game was the TV schedule was completely cleared out, so it had the slot all to itself. And I think that in, its, in itself was quite quite symbolic because this match was played exactly 100 years to the day since the English FA banned women from playing football. And, you know, to fast forward to now in 2021, when you have world-class players putting on this show in front of 41,000 fans at Wembley and the TV schedule all to themselves in a primetime slot on Sunday afternoon... 
Um, you know, I know there's a long way still to go, but I don't think you can deny the progress that has been made, especially in the last few years as well. Um, and I really enjoyed this game. Obviously, Chelsea were the were significantly better than Arsenal. I think it's fair to say over the ninety minutes, and I particularly enjoyed the second half when it really just became the the Sam Kerr show in the second half. She she scores the the second goal with a, a nice pullback finish at the near post. Although you could maybe question the goalkeeping by Zinsberger, but let her off the hook a little bit because she made a number of really good saves in in the first half. But the finish for the third goal from Sam Kerr is magnificent. One of the best finishes I've seen this season. Not just the recognition that the goalkeeper is off her line, but then the, the kind of execution of the of the chip over her. And it reminded me of another Chelsea goal, the, the Ramirez goal for Chelsea in that famous Champions League semi-final against Barcelona at the Camp Nou a number of years ago. It was very similar to, to that goal. Um, so yeah, I was, I was impressed by Kerr. I was impressed by my eyes, my eyes drawn to Erin uh, Cuthbert a lot in this game, given that she's one of Scotland's best players. And I think she did a, a really good job of exploiting the space in between the, the Arsenal back three. Um, and obviously at the moment, there's, there's just one point between Arsenal and Chelsea at the top of, of the top of the league with Arsenal actually being ahead. But I think this was a sign of just how good Emma Hayes Chelsea are at the moment. Indeed, yeah, congratulations to Emma Hayes' Chelsea there. And listener, if you do uh, get a moment, if you haven't seen it, check out Sam Kerr's third goal. It was a worldie. La Liga, uh, Barcelona um, got off to a... Well, they didn't get off to. They lost to Real Betis 1-0 at home. Uh, Betis very much beating their offside trap and their terrible attempts at defensive pressure, Graham. Tavi's honeymoon is over. His first defeat. Barca in seventh on 23 points here. Uh, there are a few players rested in this one, but they've got a pretty big midweek Champions League game coming up, Graham. Yeah, yeah. never mind Barca. It's going to get easier next in midweek away to Bayern Munich in a game they realistically need to win to stay in the Champions League. Um, yeah, a result like this had been coming for, for Xavi at Barcelona. I think they certainly have more structure. They're seeing loads more of the ball. They look a bit more like Barcelona as we know them, but they definitely have a, a creativity problem. Too. They're too easy to, to hold at arm's length and then hit on the counter, and that's exactly what happened in this match. Yeah, Nice stat from who scored. Barcelona are closer to relegation, 11 points, than they are to first place Real Madrid, 16 oh. points in the league of this season. Wow, That's rough. That is rough. Yeah, and they're going to be in the Europa League, probably, after Wednesday. Oh, the ultimate indignity, indeed. Um, <laughs> Real Madrid, meanwhile, they are still top of the league. They got a 2-0 win over Real Sociedad. Vinny Jr., once again, getting on the score sheet, his 10th goal of the season. He's unstoppable, Graham. Yeah, he's he's unbelievable. I mean, I can't remember a player who's who has made such a quantum leap in the space of just a few months. Uh, he's he's a, a real match winner, a real difference maker for, for Real Madrid. And I think one of the, the most impressive things about this for Vinny was that Real Madrid lost Benzema very early on to injury. That is a concern for them. They've obviously got Inter in the Champions League and then they've got the Madrid derby against Atleti next week. So it's a big period in their season. However, he went off early. The scoreline's nil-nil and actually Real Madrid improved after he went off. Luka Jovic came on and did his first thing ever for Real Madrid in his whole career there. Um, he played very much like Benzema would play with Vin- Vinicius in that attack. So... Maybe Real Madrid have more depth than we thought before the start of this season. They're looking in pretty good shape at the moment. They're eight points clear at the top of the Liga. And I think if they beat Atleti next weekend in the derby, 
you could almost say that that, that title race might be over because that will be 11 points and I just don't see anyone catching them. Well, that's probably one we should cover in next week's weekend review, Graham. Um, just before we go, though, quick look at Serie A as well. Milan got a comfortable win over rock bottom Salinatana. Um, their total of points are at 38. That's their highest after 16 league games since 2003-04. They were quite good then. So it's a good sign for Milan there. Uh, they are top because Napoli lost uh, 3-2 at home to Atalanta. Um, that brought them down to third. Atlanta moving up to fourth. Meanwhile, Atalanta have now won five in a row in the league, including away wins at Juve and Napoli. They're one to be feared again, I guess. Atalanta are scary, or at least they, they can be scary. Under Gasparini, they've been erratic at times in the past. But when they're on, I mean, we've seen it already in the Champions League this year. That's where I've seen it up close. We've also seen it in Serie A, as you're saying, Ryan, with that recent form the way that they use the ball and rotate makes it so hard to defend against. And if you're not adequately prepared to deal with a lot of their man-to-man pressure, you're going to struggle. And Atalanta are catching teams with both of those things in the league right now. And it's fun to watch. Fun to watch indeed. i tell you what was less fun to watch, Joe. Uh, I went to the Stadio Olimpico this weekend. I saw Roma versus <laughs> Inter Milan. Uh, Roma just 3-0 down after, what, like half an hour or so. Um, I did see an Olimpico at the Olimpico, though. Uh, uh, Hakan Chalanolu scoring directly from a corner to open the scoring there. I don't know if you guys saw this one, but Roma were just so weak. They made no attempt to attack in the second half. They, they had some players missing in this one, of course, and uh, the likes of Tammy Abraham were out suspended, but still very, very poor. Graham, did you see Mourinho um, and his reaction after this game? Wasn't too happy. No, I also saw his quote about a journalist and how he earns more than a journalist because his job is, or the journalist's job is easier, which, uh, stay classy, Josie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, really, when you said, Ryan, there, that, that watching Mourinho's latest implosion wasn't fun, I mean, that, that is, uh, that's subjective, to be honest. <laughs> I can imagine that that might have been uh, quite fun, depending on your, your point of view. Yes, it's not going well for Jose at all in, Ro- in Rome. And you just wonder what is what has happened to him and kind of what's next, because I would be surprised if he sees out the season at Roma at this point. Where where does he go after Roma? It's it's just it's collapsing and falling around him very very quickly. Yeah. Go and sit on that giant pile of money. That's what I would do, Graham. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was quite hard to have any smirks or um, Schadenfreude in Mourinho's direction when I was sitting around tens of thousands of Roma fans All in right, the stadium yeah. there. <laughs> but uh, you didn't wear your Lazio shirt. I then. didn't wear my Lazio shirt. But I tell you what, I've now seen Lazio and Roma at that stadium. The aggregate score for those two teams are uh, zero to five. So maybe I shouldn't go to games anymore here is uh, is a thing. I'm not very good like, yeah. for Rome home teams, it seems. One odd thing uh, I did notice in this game, Edin Dzeko, of course, playing for Inter, a former Roma striker. He was both clapped loudly and booed off by the Roma fans. It's like they didn't they weren't singing from the same hymn sheet. I've never seen that before. It was I think the Curva Sud was um whistling and booing, whereas the rest of the stadium was like begrudgingly standing and clapping him. I mean <laughs> Maybe maybe he only scored his goals for Roma at one end of the pitch. Yeah, that's it. So one end of the stadium only saw the good bits, but the other end saw the bad bits. Maybe yeah, the 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 entire Roma faithful were the Larry David undecided gif, Graham. That's what it is. <laughs> they were the personification of that gif. Uh one other note we should say from Serie A, Juventus got a 2-0 win over Genoa. They are all the way up to fifth. Ooh, nosebleed territory. And another Olympico in that game. I don't know if you saw one Quadrado also got an Olympico scoring directly from a corner and it went in off the crossbar, which automatically makes it more beautiful, Graham. Yeah, I don't know what's I don't know what's going on with the Olympicos. It reminds me of last season where Lionel Messi spent 
89 minutes of every match for Barcelona trying to score direct from a corner. Uh, maybe that's what's happening in Serie A. Yeah, seems to be. Just go direct, go direct uh, is, the, uh, is the MO in Serie A. And the MO from me is to say goodbye right now. It's been a wonderful week in review. Thank you very much, listener. Thank you, Joseph Lowry. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, Graham Rutherford. Thank you, Ryan. That's it from us. We'll be back soon. Bye.